0: This program provides education, not advice. Sponsors pay a fee for endorsements and interviews. See the TruthAYF.com disclosure page for details. This is where technology, innovation, and personal finance come together.
1: This is the truth about your future with Rick Edelman. Brought to you by Global X ETFs, dedicated to providing investors with unexplored intelligent solutions. And by Invesco QQQ, anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ, Invesco Distributors, Inc. And by Presidio, offering a digital vault where you can collect, protect, and share all your important people, places, things, and documents with all the key people in your life. Start for free at presidio.com.
2: It's Friday, September 29th. Coming up on the show today, is real estate investing dead? Should you run away from it or jump into it? And are blockchains safe from hackers? But first off, I want to follow up on something new from PayPal. Yesterday, I told you that PayPal has launched a stable coin, a digital coin that has a stable $1 value. You can hear all about it by listening to yesterday's podcast. The link is in the show notes. In that podcast, you might remember, I said it won't be long before others in the financial services industry start launching their own stable coins too, to compete with PayPal. For sure, we're starting to see big financial institutions engage with crypto, including pension funds. Lockheed Martin's pension fund has invested in Hidden Road, a big crypto prime broker. That's the latest pension fund to reveal their crypto investments. The Ontario Teachers Pension Fund has invested in crypto. So has the Houston Firefighters Fund and the Fairfax County, Virginia Police Officers Pension Fund. So go ahead. Think you can ignore crypto. Whether you know it or not, your pension plan and your stock funds may well be investing in crypto without you even realizing it. Wouldn't it be better to learn how all this works? That's why you should go through our certificate program. You can attain your certification in blockchain and digital assets. We have courses not just for financial advisors, but also financial professionals, back office executives, crypto professionals, and for investors, consumers, and students. You can choose from the basic certificate program or the advanced program, and you get as many as 18 continuing education credits. Learn more about this at DACFP.com, D-A-C-F-P.com. The link is in the show notes. Let me switch gears now, and I mean that literally, electric vehicles. EVs are all the rage. If you don't already own one, I bet you're thinking about it. They've got the potential to cut carbon emissions in a really big way, and as a result, they're increasing global demand for the key minerals that are essential for the batteries that power these cars. I'm talking lithium, graphite, cobalt, nickel. When I say we're increasing demand, I mean we're increasing demand like 400 to 600 percent. We already have 40 electric vehicle models in the U.S. from the Chevy Bolt that costs just 28 grand, 21 after you factor in the government rebate, to the two-door Rolls Royce Spectre with its base price of 460 thousand dollars. Add in the options, and you're more likely to spend over 500 grand for that Rolls-Royce. You want one? Forget it. They're already sold out. But you can order one for 2025, and no, I have not ordered one. Car-for-car, car, EVs tend to cost about a third more than their ICE cousins. ICE, internal combustion engine. EV versus ICE. The average price for the top 10 EVs? About $61,000. And the reason people buy them is not because, oh, you're not trying to protect the environment. Oh, yeah, sure, go ahead, make the claim. No, the real reason you're buying an EV is because it's cheaper to own. They cost a third less in overall lifetime costs than ICE cars. And it's not kids who are buying these things. The average EV buyer is 54 and has an income of hundred grand What's stopping you from buying? Well, you know the answer to that. The range. 61% say they're concerned with where you get your EV charged. Oh, it's easy if you live in the house and you stay local. What if you live in an apartment? What if you drive to work really far or go on the road? How many charging stations are there? More than half of those surveyed by Forbes say they're worried that driving an EV will run out of juice while they're traveling. And so far, there are not very many electric vehicles on the road. We've only sold 800,000 of them. That's out of last year's total car sales of 13 million, but it's still early. The tech's improving every year. Toyota just announced that they've developed a battery that can go nearly 800 miles on a single charge, and recharging takes only 10 minutes. So once we get the range where we all want it, I think we'll all be driving EVs. Mercedes-Benz has already ended all of its R&D for its internal combustion engines. It's now only developing EV technology, and everybody else in the auto business is pretty much doing the same thing. So while we only sold 800,000 of these things last year, that was still a 60% increase over the prior year. By 2035, it's projected we'll have 63 million of them on the road. So instead of buying an EV, maybe you ought to invest in the EV industry. Let me tell you about the Global X Autonomous and Electric Vehicles ETF. The symbol is DRIVE, D-R-I-V. This is the largest pure electric vehicle ETF on the market. It's got a billion dollars in assets already, which shows you how popular it is. Its top holdings include Apple, Toyota, Alphabet, Tesla, Intel, Honeywell, Qualcomm, NVIDIA, Microsoft, Allegheny Technologies. It's got tech stocks as well as auto stocks. Check out the Global X Autonomous and Electric Vehicles ETF, Symbol Drive. Learn more at GlobalXETFs.com or ask your financial advisor. And if you're not a financial advisor, ask them about it. Coming up next, Bert Crouch, head of North America Real Estate for Invesco, when we return.
0: Where do you store your important documents? How do you keep track of what you have or where it is? Use Presidio, the digital vault where you can collect, protect, and share all your important people, places, things, and documents with all the key people in your life. What you have and where you have it. You'll always know where your valuable information is kept, and you can easily and securely share your info anytime with anyone you choose. Try Presidio free today at presidio.com. That's P-R-I-S-I-D-I-O dot com. Presidio.
3: With more of our lives moving online, cybersecurity is always a concern. And with AI introducing even more complexity, the risks can multiply. Fortunately, a range of innovative companies are mounting a defense against bad actors. Explore the Global X Cybersecurity ETF, ticker BUG, to add this exposure to your portfolio. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the fuller summary prospectus at globalxetfs.com. Read carefully, distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co.
2: you're listening to The Truth About Your Future, you know, I've been beating up on real estate for a while. How scared should you be? I mean, most importantly, how scared should you be about investing in real estate today? Remember, you know, falling prices, that's actually great news for investors if you're smart because buying low is a whole lot smarter than buying high, right? And I've told you about, in the past, Invesco's leadership in the world of real estate investing. And so I want to talk about all this in greater detail. And and to help us do it, I'm really happy to welcome onto the show Bert Crouch. He is the Managing Director, Portfolio Manager, and Head of North America for Invesco Real Estate. And Bert also serves on Invesco's Global Executive Committee. Bert, great to have you with us. Yeah, it's great to be here, Rick. Thanks for uh, letting me join. So let's talk about all this. We've been reading, you know, all the headlines over the past couple of years, ever since COVID, of course, about how office buildings are empty. Everybody's working from home. Nobody's going into the office. We've got these see-through buildings. Is there another side of the coin to this or is the office market
0: dead? Yeah, it's funny. Um, So many of our investor and partner discussions start and end with office. And look, it's fair. It's a sensationalist headline. It, It reads well. And it's something that we can all equate to because at one point in any you know stage of our careers we've worked uh, in in an office. So you know uh, maybe set the stage, Rick, quickly. When you think about private institutionally owned real estate, ninety percent of it is not traditional office. Uh, when you think about public listed real estate uh, investment trusts, ninety six percent of that is not traditional office, and and that's moved materially over the last two decades i mean it's been cut in half on the private institutional side in in 2000 in the listed universe uh, you know traditional office was over 20%. so we've seen other aspects of commercial real estate really gain uh, in size as as the office universe has shrunk. so that'd be the first thing that maybe i'd note. let's be careful about painting all things commercial real estate with the broad brush. does that therefore
2: suggest that it's only the commercial office marketplace that is suffering like this and at other sectors of the real estate marketplace or not?
0: Generally speaking, yes. I mean, when you think about, um, you know, just general commercial real estate and let's lump in residential as well. When we say commercial, let's talk about multifamily, single family rental and, and other, but the fundamentals tell a generally strong story. Now, the second derivative is coming down, Rick. And what I mean by that is You've got rental rate growth, take single family rental. It might have been low double digit this time last year. It's fallen to four to 5% today, but it's still positive. It's still beating inflation. You've got, take logistics or industrial. Uh, The vacancy rate maybe is slightly up from last year's historic low, but it's still at 5%, still 300 basis points south of the historical average. So, to your question, fundamentals outside of office, and even in certain aspects of office, which we can touch on, are very strong. Now, the capital market side of it tells a different story.
2: Well, now, I'm a little confused. I I think a lot of folks will be, if you're not talking about commercial office buildings, and you've lumped together multifamily buildings, meaning big apartment complexes, what else is there in the world of real estate? I mean, because I think that's what most people are thinking of. You're thinking of an office buildings, or where I work or where I live, right? So if you take those out, so, yeah, they stink, but everything else is okay. That's sort of like saying, well, the play was great, except for Lincoln. You
0: know? so. <laughs> right. No, I, I get it. I get it. You know, when you think about the benchmarks off of which our performance is judged, uh, historically, it had been just four major sectors, to your point. You, you hit on multifamily, so apartments, office, then you had industrial and retail. That, that was it. And when you look at today, they just expand, recently expanded, they being uh, NCREIF. it's an acronym for the National Property Index went from four sectors to nine. And they did that because we've seen such a significant investment outside of the traditional or kind of big four property types. When you go back to my comment earlier about the listed or or publicly traded REITs, uh, almost half of that is non-traditional, meaning non-major four. So your question, what, what are those? Well, residential is not just apartments anymore. You've got affordable housing, senior living, student housing, Single family rental, build to rent, manufactured housing. I mean, the world has expanded significantly, not just in where people are living, but why people are living there. And so when you think about, you know, I I loved your opening comment about the best time to buy is when no one else is or prices are down. You could extrapolate that further to say, and investing in sectors that maybe are outside the norm and or we're seeing those secular tailwinds that we really hadn't seen, at least in scale before COVID.
2: So, okay, that that sounds a little bit better, Um, but related to that, therefore, what would you say is the story we're not hearing, that we do need to be hearing?
0: Yeah, so a a couple of things, you know, we're all focused on interest rates and what the Fed is going to do or not going to do, and are they going to raise another 25 basis points? I think a lot of the story is being missed, at least in in my world, uh, in investing in in real assets and commercial real estate specifically, is is where are they going to hold interest rates? Over the next two years, that, that is a huge factor. You think about just Rick and May, the terminal peak rate assumed for this secured overnight financing rate. So uh, the proxy for short term rates was going to peak in the mid fours. Now it's all the way out in the mid fives. That's in 90 days. It's up 90 basis points. And if you look at the forward curve, we're expected to average four and a half percent. Go back less than two years and that was zero. So w- w- when you think about rates, it's not or are they going to raise or not. The question is, are they going to cut and how much over what period of time? I think that's one uh, on interest rates. Another big point is just the, the 10 year treasury. Um, and that's important for two reasons in commercial real estate. One, it's an alternative to financing on a floating rate basis you would fix. And over the last 12, 18 months, that's been a lot cheaper than floating rates. But just recently, really, you know, over the last, you know, call it uh, again, a couple months, we've seen that go from the mid threes out to the low and and mid fours. So suddenly you've got a 10 year that's moved up significantly and that affects our exit cap rates.
2: Yeah. And I was, wait, I was just going to ask, okay, so you've given a pretty good synopsis of interest rates. What does that mean? What's the implication of all of that on real estate investors?
0: To oversimplify it, it's more expensive to finance. And accordingly, it sells at a lower value because the required premium, the yield on that, what we call a, a, a cap rate, a capitalization rate uh, is higher uh, because those those historically plus or minus have have moved in tandem.
2: And I think every homeowner can understand what you just said, because we know that the higher the interest rate is, the higher my mortgage payment is, which means the less of a house I can afford to buy. And that pushes my payment up and pushes prices down. And I think we all get
0: that. But it, and it's a great point, because if you think about the single family rental market, which is a derivation of what you just said, which is the traditional, you know, owner occupier market, uh, interest rates are, are back close to, to recent highs, all time highs in the north of 7%. And you and I can laugh about, you know, in the in the 70s, you know, you've got high teens mortgage rates, but at least over the last two plus decades, uh, we're at, at relative highs. That said. You know, home values have not moved down nearly as much as the, you know people expected, and actually, HPA home price appreciation is to some extent back. Uh, we're a large player in the in the single family rental market. We own uh, an interest in a in a, a company called Mind Mynd, and what we saw was yields move out, but then they stopped. And the reason they did that was because there's there's more demand than supply. No one's selling; everyone locked in at that you know three ish percent rate. And they're not moving. Because if they move, they're going to have to pay today's mortgage
2: prices. And they're like, I locked in at two and a quarter. I don't want to have to go buy a new house and get a new loan at four and a half because that monthly payment will be so much higher than my current monthly payment. And so you're right. Homeowners don't want to sell. That means there's a dramatic reduction in inventory for would-be buyers. uh, And that's keeping prices high.
0: That's exactly right. And, And so, you know, one of the things I don't think people are paying enough attention to is apartments have been uh, somewhat of a darling of commercial real estate. So if you have office on the four-letter word category, on the opposite end of the spectrum, you've got apartments. And apartments were deemed very favorably because they adjust extremely well to inflation. Uh, We talked about commercial real estate being an inflation hedge. Historically, that's 100% accurate. It has a 0.5 correlation historically to inflation, especially in periods of hyperinflation that jumps to 0.7. And the reason for that is apartment rents reset every year. So you can push those rental rates up counter to single family. In the multifamily space, we're dealing with historic high deliveries. So 200,000 units so far this year, 650,000 expected. And what we're seeing in our portfolio, we own almost 40,000 units. We're starting to see that roll over, meaning we're seeing rate rental rates not increase at the same rate and maybe even start to decline. And we've seen real pressure also on the expense side operating expenses you know higher wages generally we've seen insurance rise significantly on average as low as 15 as high as 50 plus especially in the coastal markets and then obviously we just talked about interest rates especially on the floating rate side so we are starting to see some of those areas where you've got to be able and this is where investor real estate's portfolio in North America alone is about 170 million square feet about 53 billion of assets under management we've got to be able to pivot from you know the multifamily to single family rental. And that again goes to your comment about where can we buy at the lowest level and also where we're seeing demand and or fundamentals hold up better than the other, even if they're in the same sector, in this case, all things residential.
2: You said in passing a statistic that I think is noteworthy. Forty thousand units that you own, this I have to conclude that Invesco has got to be one of the largest real estate investors in the country.
0: That's right. That's right. We are, historic. you know, we're doing anywhere from 4-ish uh, billion of loan originations a year, 6 to 7 billion of acquisitions. And again, I just gave you our portfolio statistics um, of, you know, 170 million square feet, 100 different markets. Um, so, you know, the depth and breadth of our portfolio is really important. And, you know, we might talk about data or AI more in a minute, but harnessing that is paramount to, to generating out performance. And that's one of the things on which we're hyper-focused at the moment.
2: So uh, how do you determine what to buy? Is the amount of money you have such a large amount because so many investors turn to you for their real estate allocation in their portfolios that you're indiscriminately buying anything you can get your hands
0: on? Or, (laughs) I mean, you know. Yeah, I I, I sure hope not. I'd be out of a job uh, pretty quickly from a a relative and absolute performance perspective. But no, it's a great question. And, you know, we get the question all the time and, and you kind of let off with office and just how bad that narrative is, and it it does go back to why would you invest in commercial real estate at all? Uh, we've seen a significant run up in prices, and there's broad based concern, and a lot of it's warranted. I just gave you, you know, whether it's multifamily or industrial, you've got you know supply that's ramped up, rental rates have come down, and in, in maybe or they're not growing as quickly. So you know, why would we or where would we, to your question, uh, invest? Um, it, it doesn't just have to be about sector. It's really a combination of sector and positioning. And, and what do I mean by that? Um, right now, you know, when you talk about real estate, the, the standard mantra is location, location, location. What I would add to that in today's environment is credit, credit, credit. Uh, in my career, I have never seen a more attractive entry point for an investor than today in private credit secured by real assets. And, and let me just walk you through what I mean by that. So where to invest? I already told you on how we're pivoting within the residential sector, you know, whether that's to self-storage during COVID, whether that's to life science or medical office out of traditional office, you got to pivot to where the the secular trends are going and we're harnessing the data of our portfolio. But more than that, I mentioned we're doing three to four billion of loans uh, a year. Rick, I can originate a loan today at SOFR plus low 300s over. So that loan has, the the spread has widened out 100 basis points. And that's because all the things you know, Silicon Valley failed, signature failed. All of a sudden, this light was cast on, you know, bank deposits are flighty, risk management is weak, and, and the regional banks are overweight commercial real estate. And I can walk you through those stats, but that's the punchline. So they're, they've pulled back on lending. We've seen lending down, it's over 50% down year over year. The expectation by the Mortgage Bankers Association is it's going to be down 40% this year. So there's not a lot of homes for commercial mortgages today. Securitization, commercial mortgage backed securities is down over 70% year over year and getting worse, not better. So we're out there making loans, Rick. And we're doing that. And if you just think about what I said, if SOFR was zero two years ago, it's over 5% today. I told you the curve is relatively flat. I'm getting a spread of 300 over that. What's the punchline, Bert? Punchline is we're getting an unlevered yield of over 8%, making new loans at a 30 to 35% cushion to today's value. So we have a significant insulation. your, Your capital is safe and you're generating your entire return in current income and you've got an inherent inflation hedge. So what do I mean by that? If rates keep going up, if the Fed has to keep battling inflation like they did in the 70s, we make more money because we're making a floating rate loan. As rates go up, our investment gets better. And what we do is we lever our investment moderately. So today we're generating 12% cash on cash, 13% IRRs. I love that trade. So uh,
2: in comparison to different sectors of the real estate marketplace you're you're picking and choosing where you want to be based on location based on type of property based on credit quality but that's all within the real estate sphere investors have choices beyond just real estate they may compare to stocks bonds gold crypto oil you name it baseball cards so make the case in a relative basis of real estate versus other investment opportunities that are non real estate.
0: Yeah, you know, it's so funny internally, you know, we have a number of individuals that investment professionals come to me and say, bro, we've got to buy this asset because it's so much cheaper than it was 12, 18, 24 months ago. And I'm saying, you know, but your public institutional CIO or your FA or your head of a family office, they don't care about if it was cheaper than it was in real estate. They're looking to your point at the entire investable universe. And they're looking at volatility, they're looking at capital preservation, current income, and total returns. That's that simple. So how does real estate stack up? A couple of ways to, to address that. One, I'm going to start with credit because that is our, our primary thesis today. Loan losses, capital preservation, first question I get. Um, loan losses over the last 10 years in commercial real estate credit have been less than 25 basis points. That compares to corporates or high yield that are one and a quarter to one and a half percent. So loan losses have been historically low. Granted, you've got to watch out for office today, which in new origination, you wouldn't do. So that feels great. Number two would be risk return. So that would be you know a sharp ratio. Commercial mortgage credit has been at a six versus a high yield at a 0.5. So you don't have a lot of NAV or net asset value volatility, Rick, in commercial mortgages. You make the loan, you put it to bed. Correlations, third question. Well, Bert, if I like the relative value and I like the, so I like a 12 cash on cash, I like the sharp ratio risk return. I like the capital preservation, but how does it fit in a portfolio? Diversification wise, it fits really well. So a lot of family offices would have maybe a significant real estate allocation already on the equity side. The correlation historically credit to traditional real estate is zero. The correlation to other fixed income asset classes averages 0.15. So I think it stacks up well um, in you know on all things relative value. The last point I'd make is You go back to my point about it being an inflation hedge. If we're wrong about inflation, it's not cooling, you win. If you're right about inflation cooling and and going down and rates going down, you win. Why? Because you're going to make a three-year transitional loan. The borrower is going to refinance you at a lower rate. and You're going to reinvest those proceeds in another asset class that you like better. So I think that there's an inherent hedge, not just to inflation, but to the broader markets. The last way I'd answer that question, let's go to real estate equity. And I want to keep coming back to your opening opening line. Today, if you're leaning into a sector that others are leaning out of, historically, you've made excess returns. So what do I mean? If you bought real estate in 2001, so that was the you know, dot-com crash, the, the 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 tech bubble, or you bought in 09 coming out of the global financial crisis, you made a five-year forward look unlevered return in traditional real estate of mid-teens, 14%. And in and the, uh, and the, and the tech crash, 15% in the global financial crisis. If you, if you invested in COVID, you did even better than that. But I don't obviously have a five-year forward look yet. But even with, even with values going down, you did better than that. So by leaning in today, you do better than obviously uh, you would if, if you bought uh, closer to the peak. Uh, second to that, the income durability of real estate has proven out over the last 20 years, Unlevered, real estate's average to five and a half. That compares to fixed income in a four and a half and, and the S&P 500. So just traditional dividends in public equities at south of two. So whether it's income inequities or total return or real estate equity or total return, that's also shown relatively well. Now, you got to buy right. You got to pick the right sector. You got to pick the right part of the capital structure. But that's our job.
2: And it's not really a question, is it, of real estate versus stocks or versus bonds or versus whatever. It's If you believe in portfolio diversification, it's a question of doing a little bit of everything. And that means deciding how much to do of each sector. So what would you say for a typical portfolio? What should the allocation be to real estate? What percentage of the portfolio?
0: Yeah, you know what I what I typically look to is um, is the the public institutions uh, who have spent more time than um, than than necessarily anyone else in analyzing the efficient frontier and all of the different options. And I, I would think about them as having true access to anything on a global basis. And say, what percentage of their portfolio are they putting in alternatives, private markets, and then of that, what is in real estate? And, and the answer is right at ten percent. Um, you know that started. If you look back 10, 15, 20 years ago, real estate was just a part of private equity. It didn't even have its own asset class. And that's evolved over time to the point now where it has its own sector within public public equities. And what that's done is it's raised the profile of real estate to the point that investors have recognized the benefit of having a real asset allocation um, that's primarily in traditional real estate, but now it's expanded into credit. And so what I would tell you is today it's at 10%, but many are taking it up. To anywhere from 12 to 15. And you
2: mentioned that there were a lot of criteria in determining whether or not you should invest in real estate and when you're comparing it to other asset classes and you cited a pretty good list of criteria such as risk and return and credit quality and such. One thing you didn't mention is liquidity. Real estate is traditionally regarded as an illiquid asset. I mean, I can sell my stocks, with a you know a text click of a button with my brokerage account, I can't sell my house that easily. And the lack of liquidity, some argue is pretty good. It prevents you from doing something dumb fast. But on the other hand, it's a cumbersome element. And in many cases, when people invest in real estate funds, there is a complete lack of liquidity. They have a lockup period where they say, you put your money into this thing, such as with private equity funds, your money's locked up for seven to 10 years. You can't get out even if you wanted to, how does Invesco address the liquidity question?
0: It's the right question to ask, especially given again some of the headlines recently with the uh, the non-traded REIT universe. Um, The the short and simple answer, Rick, is, you know, real estate is a long-term asset class and it should be looked as a long-term investment in your portfolio. So when you're looking at real estate equity in the private space, you really shouldn't be making it on a, on a short-term basis. So I I think that's number one. Um, And and number two is you should have a balanced portfolio within real estate. You should have public equities Uh, in in the public equity or listed REIT space. You can also look at at the credit aspects of of publics, which are in the mortgage REITs. You can access daily liquidity and still get real estate exposure. That should be a minority, in our opinion, of your real estate uh, portfolio. But if you need to maintain a certain amount of liquidity, that's the best way to do it. Now, there are hybrid vehicles that do allow some level of monthly and quarterly liquidity that we've read about. And to the dumb decision comment, which was made tongue in cheek, but I think resonates, you know, what investors and managers like us have to do is we have to look at our portfolio, our fiduciary and all of our investors as a whole. And what we want to make sure that we do is we don't make snap decisions based on an interim period of time. So to the extent that we're investing Over a longer period of time, which is the horizon in a core plus uh, mandate, we want to make sure that we maintain a certain level of liquidity to pay out on an ongoing basis. At the same time, we don't want to have to sell in periods of adversity and illiquidity, capital market dislocation, which in large part is is where we find ourselves today. The last part of that question that, that I'd say is the best hybrid, and I go back to credit and why we like it today, in making shorter term bridge loans, you get two things. One, modified duration is a concept that a lot of you know, FAs or uh, public institutions think about. If you look at your investment horizon, if I get zero income and I'm locked up for seven to 10 years, there's just a higher implicit risk in that versus short-term credit that is a two to five-year investment, but really more in that three to four-year floating rate, and you're paying out 90% of your return is current income, so that's going to shorten that repayment period and add that ongoing liquidity. So that's not only the one of the more attractive investments that we see today, but it's also a good blend of your question, which is how do you generate some liquidity at the same time, not um, jeopardize the uh, the risk return profile by a knee jerk?
2: So along those lines, Invesco offers a, a probably the most robust lineup of real estate funds that I've seen from any fund company. Talk about um, the different offerings that you make available.
0: Well, I'm not actually allowed to speak to specific offerings due to to regulatory uh, sensitivities. So I I can't address specific funds. Um, But what I can do is I can talk about strategies generally. And today you know, if you look at where we're deploying capital and where that is democratized or accessible uh, across the universe, uh, it really is in the core plus equity space to the entry point and in the credit uh, arena and and the loans that, that we're making. So again, I'd highlight where we're leaning in from a thesis or strategy perspective instead of highlighting specific vehicles.
2: Got it. You know, this podcast, of course, is all about disruption, exponential technologies, all of its innovations. The big topic this year that everybody you know is seeing front page every day is AI. It seems it's the only subject that anybody cares about talking about anymore. Does AI have any connection or relevance to real estate?
0: Yeah, it does. It has a lot. Um, more than I'm willing to admit, it's funny, Rick. You know, I feel like we were having this tokenization comment, uh, you know, two, three, four, five years, where I was told, gosh, you know, birth of fund management, investment management industry is gonna be by the wayside and we're gonna be exchanging tokens. Um, in some sort of uh, secure Bitcoin-esque blockchain, et cetera, et cetera. And, and look, is that innovation happening? Yes, but is it happening at a much slower pace than people expected? Yes. Uh, I would take AI, especially generative AI and flip that script. So I actually do think it's a more warranted topic given how quickly it's affecting positively our industry. Um, so how, how, how is, it, is that happening and what does it mean? Um, you know, I, The simple answer, the short answer is it's, it's taking us away as investment professionals from a lot of the, I hate to say menial, but a lot of the day-to-day activities that we are forced to do, accounting, reporting, uh, performance analytics, sales comps, lease comps, legal document reviews, it's making that so much more efficient. So we're still doing the same level of work, meaning the same level of output. But the way that we're able to do that, utilizing AI to go through and search all of these data points through a sophisticated query and kick us back, here's what you need to know. Here's the table, here's the data, the output for then our investment professionals to analyze and whether that's report to our investors, whether that's to report to an investment committee, make an informed investment decision, strategic pivot, that is game-changing. So that's one, operational efficiencies. Two would be alpha generation. So again, I go back to our portfolio. Bigger is not better, Rick. Bigger is better if we can harness that data, quality control it, and then get it in the hands of our investment professionals, our portfolio managers on a real-time basis. Generative AI and all of our data, we got rid of our traditional research group four years ago. It's all data scientists now because they need to take the data and the analytics that come out of the modeling that we now have in large part through large language modeling to then take that, analyze it and tell our investment professionals, here's what it means, here's where to go, here's where to optimize performance. And it's a huge competitive advantage for scaled investment managers like Invest in real estate.
2: So it sounds like you're all in on AI.
0: All in, gotta be, otherwise you're gonna get left.
2: And that's kind of the, the the big message about AI. People think that AI is going to put people out of work. It's not. AI will not put you out of work. The guy using AI is going to put you out of work.
0: <laughs> right. Well, that's that's incredibly well said. You know, there's a lot of threats to our business, and AI is, is not that. It's the opposite. And I, I think those that are fearful or hesitant to utilize it that stick to this You know, it's a local fragmented, hey, I'm just the best real estate investor. That no longer qualifies. You've got to see the global universe. You know, investor real estate has 21 offices, 16 countries, over 90 billion of assets under management, 15 of that's listed real assets. The residual is in private direct. We've got to harness all of that information, all of that intel, and see where capital flows are moving. I mean, Rick, capital flows drive value. As much as the underlying fundamentals, you've got to know where investors want to go and why to your relative value question earlier. You've got to be looking at that. You've got to be looking at capital markets. Where is financing coming from? Where is it not? Where are spreads? Where are levered yields? And then you've got to be looking at fundamentals. You've got to do all of that in a very short time period. We're seeing sector performance divergence like we've never seen it, meaning office values down, industrial values up. You got to be able to pivot. You got to do that efficiently. You got to get into the single family rental space before it's popular. You got to know how that dovetails with self-storage. You got to see student housing and senior living based on demographics. All of that is data. And if you're not harnessing that through means like AI, we think you'll get left behind.
2: One of the other big technological innovation conversations that has been occurring over the past, oh, five, six years has been tokenization, which is coming out of the blockchain world. The notion that You take a big company like IBM worth $100 billion, and you slice it into tiny pieces, we call them shares, and you can buy a piece of IBM for $100. Uh, And that makes IBM affordable for any investor. And it's also liquid. I can buy and sell it on a daily basis whenever I choose. I can't do that to the Empire State Building. It too is a billion-dollar asset or multi-billion-dollar, but who's got the ability to write that check other than institutional investors like you? And once you do write that check, how easily can you sell the property? It's not as liquid as tradable. So the notion is, thanks to blockchain technology and digital assets, we tokenize the building. We slice that building into tiny little pieces of 10 bucks a piece. And now anybody can buy these otherwise expensive, illiquid assets. They become affordable. They become liquid. We're democratizing and demonetizing what have otherwise been unreachable assets except for the very rich. Uh, that was the promise of tokenization. And we've seen examples of this in Dubai. Half a dozen buildings have been tokenized. The uh, St. Regis Hotel in Aspen was tokenized. Uh, There was an apartment condo in Manhattan tokenized in 2018. But those are simple little examples. Is tokenization just a dream or is it going to really become a
0: thing over the next decade? It's going to become a thing. Uh, The question is, in, in what scale? Uh, You know, we're really focused on it is to the comment earlier about, you know, seven to 10 year lockups in in funds. Is there a better way to parse up that universe to where you could exit? Uh, There's a very large market, as as you're well aware, Rick, in secondaries. So that's buying a secondary LP interest in a usually a closed in commingled uh, fund vehicle. So the question is, will it democratize access further? than what we're talking about to all investors, public and private, high net worth individual, uh, to your average investor, and then obviously up to the large institution. So just to add a level of transparency and liquidity, we think it will. Uh, the question though is around, and, and again, we've seen some of the the headwinds, um, uh, you know, blockchain and, and Bitcoin, you know, 10, 15 years, and there's still not regulations governing it. And, and we're seeing the SEC start to really crack down on that. It, Needless to say, we have to adhere to the regulatory bodies and how they're going to manage that. The tax implications are also very real. How does that How does that flow through? How does protected information and confidential, confidential information, how is that um, managed and harnessed through that process? So uh, look, we think it's gonna continue to evolve. We think it will continue to add positive elements, again, transparency and liquidity. Uh, the question is how and when, and we're focused, yes, on buildings, um, but more on how it would affect vehicles, especially those that are commingled uh, to allow better and more efficient access uh, to all, uh, all investors.
2: So as the tokenization technology continues to uh, develop, emerge, mature, what will Invesco's engagement be? We'll, I'll give you three choices. Uh, will you be a developer of this technology, creating the tokenization features within your portfolios? Will you be a user, a buyer of tokenized real estate, or will you be on the sidelines saying we're going to do neither of the above?
0: Yeah, I, I might, I might throw in a in a fourth and, and somewhat as a as a hybrid between the first two. Um, I don't see us being a quote unquote developer of it, and that doesn't mean we're not going to be a first mover. Uh, what it means is we believe you need an exchange. You need it needs to be properly structured such that you've got not only willing buyer and seller, but you've got a, a process that's properly regulated and properly governed such that um, it, it creates enough of an index that thereby generating liquidity, which gets us to our end game here.
2: In other words, you need you need a format very similar to what the stock market uses with the New York Stock Exchange versus companies listing stocks and investors buying those stocks.
0: Exactly. So what do we have? We have the willingness. We have the innovation. We have the technology. We have the, the data spend, if you will, given our size and scale. But most importantly, Rick, we have the assets. So we've been approached by a number of groups trying to build the exchanges. These are in large part investment banks um, that say, look, we need you to be a first mover to contribute an ownership interest in a building to tokenize because we want to put it on a certain exchange. We have to be very careful with our fiduciary if that owner whether it's a fund or an individual or uh, an institution. But with that said, we want to be a contributor to that financially, asset-wise, and a buyer and seller to help generate that liquidity. But the key is we need a broader market movement towards it. If you look at what investor Real Estate's done over time, whether it's the different indexes, we helped create the first core equity index in North America and then we did the same in Asia and Europe. We would do the same thing in the in the blockchain in tokenization. You just have to do it right, and you have to do it on a calculated basis, such that it, it it's something that's scalable.
2: Okay, one last uh, question for you, uh, Bert. What what are you most focused on in the next year?
0: Yeah, so you know, uh, it, I think in real estate uh, we are, and maybe more broadly as investors, uh, this soft. Landing uh, scenario. I'm sure you get asked or are forced to talk about it a lot, not dissimilar to what I get beaten up on, on on office. And it seems to now be the consensus. Uh, the irony is, for commercial real estate, I, I don't know if that's what's best for our industry. Um, you know, having rates longer for reasons that I mentioned, uh, I don't necessarily think is good for commercial real estate. Uh, buying cheaper clearly is the credit opportunity that I mentioned is there today and would only get bigger. So. Uh, one, history has told us soft landings are tough. Uh, they very, very rarely work and, and or happen. And two, um, you know, what's best for real estate would be something I'd argue that would be more dramatic where you would see short term rates come down. We'd rip the proverbial bandaid off to an extent, um, whether it's a recessionary concern or whether it's the broader outlook for commercial banks, how they lend, where their portfolios are, what they're willing to shed, to clean up and start lending again. So I'm most focused on what that outlook um, ultimately becomes. I mentioned some of the areas uh, from a fundamentals standpoint uh, in the residential space, in the logistics space that we're hyper-focused on. Uh, AI, you mentioned it. I would tell you we're taking that to the next level. What does it mean for San Francisco and the negative narrative there? Uh, That's where those jobs are being created. That's where all that VC, venture capital funding is going. Does that change that landscape? What does it do for data centers? What does it do for traditional office use? So there's some trends, whether it's AI tokenization uh, in the capital markets or otherwise, that I would say uh, are driving the markets maybe even more than they traditionally have, that in the next six, nine, 12 months, uh, we'll be hyper-focused on because they will help set our investment posture and outlook going forward.
2: Well, as you engage in your evaluation of deciding how to allocate, where to allocate, and including real estate in a diversified portfolio, I think you're getting a pretty good sense of the capabilities of the team at Invesco and the breadth and quality and tenure of their engagement in this sector. And now you're getting a sense as to why my real estate investing is through the Invesco funds. Um, So I encourage you to learn more about this. You can do that at Invesco Real Estate and Invesco US. And of course, at Invesco.com, the links to those are in the show notes. Bert Crouch, head of Invesco Real Estate for North America at Invesco. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Hey,
0: Rick. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much
2: for the time. You're listening to The Truth About Your Future. I'm Rick Edelman. You know, you understand stocks and bonds and real estate, and you know how to evaluate them. You know how to choose among them. But do you know how to evaluate and choose among digital assets? Come learn how. On my next webinar, it's Wednesday, October 11th at 1 p.m. Eastern. I'll be joined by Christopher Jensen, Director of Research at Franklin Templeton Digital Assets, and we'll show you tokenomics, and how you can use this new research to make informed decisions about crypto coins and tokens. You'll get one CE credit, too. Stay informed about the latest in the investment management field. You can register for this webinar right now. It's Wednesday, October 11th at 1 p.m. Eastern. The link is in today's show notes. Coming up next, can blockchains be hacked? Stay with us for more on the truth about your future.
4: Support for Rick Edelman's podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund, so you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in prospectus at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors Inc. the truth about your future with rick edelman is sponsored by charles schwab seeking clarity in your financial journey schwab makes it easy for you to be an informed investor with transparent pricing low cost and no fee to work with a financial consultant schwab clearly explains their fees and helps you understand the common cost you can incur based on recommendations from your financial consultant Visit Schwab.com or swing by one of their 400 local branches to learn more. That's Schwab.com.
2: You're listening to The Truth About Your Future. I'm Rick Edelman. You know we've been talking a lot on this program about blockchain and digital assets. It's a really impactful technological innovation. That's why I talk about it with you so often. One of the things you hear about blockchain, one of the big benefits, is that it's unhackable. It's why it's so exciting for businesses around the world that secures their data on a blockchain very securely, unlike central databases that get hacked all the time. And you keep hearing stories of companies that are getting hacked, your personal data gets stolen, You know your credit card info, your date of birth, your address, and so on. But the Bitcoin blockchain has never been hacked. Since it was invented way back in 2009, how can that be? Well, the answer is simple. A blockchain is a distributed database, not a centralized one. In other words, if you go to your bank, well, their computers are in their location. The hackers know where they are. It's sort of like bank robbers go into a bank branch. I can rob you because I know where you are and you've got all the money. But a blockchain doesn't work that way. Instead of being a centralized database, it's a decentralized database. Meaning the data that is stored on a blockchain is actually stored on computers scattered all over the world. Millions of them. And this is why blockchains are considered unhackable. There is one way that they could be hacked. It's called a 51% attack. A hacker would have to gain control of more than half of all the computers all over the world that are on the blockchain, and they'd have to gain control of those computers simultaneously. That is a tall order. That's why blockchains are considered unhackable, safer ways to store and transmit data. It's just one of the reasons there's so much excitement about blockchain technology. Want to learn more about all this? Read my Amazon number one bestseller, The Truth About Crypto, from your favorite bookseller.
3: Landmark infrastructure legislation was passed in the last Congress. Now comes the work of getting it built. The Global X U.S. Infrastructure Development ETF, ticker PAVE, invests in dozens of companies helping shape the future of American infrastructure. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principle. Investments in infrastructure-related companies have greater exposure to the potential adverse economic, regulatory, political, and other changes affecting such entities. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Company.
2: That's it for today. A reminder that the latest episode of Gene's podcast came out yesterday. You can listen to Gene's show wherever you get your podcasts, and you'll find the link in
1: today's show notes. Enjoy the weekend. I'll see you Monday. The truth about your future with Rick Edelman has been brought to you by Global X ETFs, dedicated to providing investors with unexplored intelligent solutions, and by Invesco QQQ. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ, Invesco Distributors Inc., and by Presidio, offering a digital vault where you can collect, protect, and share all your important people, places, things, and documents with all the key people in your life. Start for free at Presidio.com.
0: Get the truth about your future with Rick Edelman. It's the truth, AYF.com.